Well, it is good to be together this morning, isn't it? Uh, I've, I've just been struck thinking this past week about what it means to be grateful and to be able to stand here uh, in the midst of God's people is, is definitely something that has stirred up a sense of gratefulness in my heart. Which leads me to ask, what are you most grateful for? What makes you most grateful? And, and this might be an odd experience as you reflect on it. It might be something so simple that as you experience it, you are moved to thanks and gratefulness. You don't necessarily know what you're grateful to as much as what you're grateful for. So an example, uh, I am uh, an indoor type of person. And so I walked outside on Thursday and I was like, my goodness, it is beautiful out here. And immediately I am moved to gratefulness. I didn't think, Lord, thank you for creating the sun and the seasons and all of this. I was just like, this is amazing. And it's really amazing that that sense of gratefulness, of thanksgiving, is sort of like a universal thing. You don't have to believe in God to have this human experience, this depth of feeling grateful. Certainly for us who are Christians, who believe in the God who created all of the universe and is sovereignly directing everything, whether it's the seasons or that warm day on Thursday, uh, we pour our gratefulness out to God. And this is going to be what we see in our psalm this morning, is this move to gratefulness to who God is. But what we're going to see in this psalm is that much like your and my experience, as we think of the rawness of earth, and the gloriousness of heaven. But as we think of the rawness of earth, what we are often struck by is this feeling of resentment, not of gratefulness. We look at our world, we look at our situation, even these two past years, and we think we resent them. They, they stopped us from doing what we wanted. They stopped us from experiencing the good life that we thought that God had for us. And instead of thanking God, we were moved to look down at what, he had placed before us. We resented that. Uh, when I was something like 19, I picked up uh, a short book called The Death of Ivan Ilyich. Not the type of thing that most people may be drawn to, um, but The Death of Ivan Ilyich was a book that I resonated with. At that age, I was something of a person who is controlled by the flesh, by negative emotion, and The Death of Ivan Ilyich really displayed that. Uh, here, Ivan in the story is something like a middle-aged man who has the job that he always wanted, the family that he always wanted, the position that he always wanted in society. And yet when Ivan looks at his job, he resents it. When Ivan looks at his boss, he resents him. When Ivan looks at the workers beneath him, he resents them. When Ivan looks at his family, at his wife, at his children, he is emotionally disconnected and resents them. He is not grateful for the thing that he desired and now that he has it, he resents it. What about us? As we look at the life that we've been living, as we look at those dreams that, that didn't come through but actually disappointed us, as we look at the way that the world is still, even in this moment, so fallen, so broken, are we moved to gratefulness easily? Again, the beauty of the Psalms is that it displays the rawness of our human experience here on this raw, broken earth 
but lifts our eyes to see this glorious, this wondrous reality in heaven, what's really going on and moves us to gratefulness. This is what the psalmist is gonna do in our hearts this morning. And so I encourage you to bow with me and pray that God will give us this sort of outlook on life this morning. Let's bow our heads. Father, as we look at your word this morning, we pray that you would open our eyes to see what you would have us see. That by your spirit, you've given us this psalm, not only to speak to us, but that it would become our psalm. That we would speak it back to you, that we would pray it back to you, that we would even sing it back to you, Lord. We pray that as you affect us through your word, that our response to you would be a delight to you that our response would be one of gratefulness. For God, you have saved us from peril, from the greatest depth, from the furthest reaches. You have sent your son to redeem us, to save us from what seemed like a hopeless situation. And so, Father, we pray that by your spirit that we would open our eyes to that, that our lives would be so centered and founded upon that, that we would turn in gratefulness, even in the midst of great difficulty, Father, that you would make us a thankful people this morning. And we pray that as that happens, that we would tell others of who you are and what you've done, that they too might know uh, that there is a God who hears, who delivers, and who welcomes. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. Uh, So you can grab your Bible and open up to Psalm 116. Uh, Here in Psalm 116, we are in, you know, the last book of the Psalms. We're in a section that's called the Hallel Psalms or the Egyptian Hallel Psalms. It's from Psalm 113 to Psalm 118. And what these Psalms are is they're songs that reflect back on when Egypt uh, had Israel enslaved to it and God brought his people out of Egypt. And so uh, Hallel means praise. These are songs of praise to God for saving them from Egypt as they reflect back at that event. And so what you would have is around uh, Passover every year, they would come back to this section of Psalms and sing them from Psalm 113 to 18, uh, 13 and 14 before dinner or during dinner, and then the rest after. And so as, as we sort of open up Psalm 116, let's in our minds consider that great salvific act of God from Egypt freeing his people. Let's think of what it would be like to reflect on that and God's deliverance from it. So let's open up and read from Psalm 116. The first thing that we're going to see is that even in distress, we praise God for he hears the most distant cry. Look with me in verse 1. The psalmist says, I love the Lord because he has heard my voice and my pleas for mercy because he inclined his ear to me. Therefore, I will call on him as long as I live. It's beautiful to think about that God in being in all places at all times, God knowing all things, that he can hear each one of our prayers, not just in this room, but around the world. This is our great and awesome God. But it's not just in good times that God hears us, is it? Look in verse three. The snares of death encompassed me. The pains of Sheol laid hold on me. I suffered distress and anguish. 
Now, as we read the psalmist's words, uh, John Goldengay speaks of the snares of death as though death is a hunter who's laid out snares and has captured the psalmist already. It's like the psalmist is as good as dead. This is the position. This is where the psalmist cries out to God for salvation after he's already caught, already already helpless. Did you see what he says after that in verse three? He says that the pains of Sheol encompass me or the pains of Sheol laid hold on me. Uh, in, in the Bible, this place, Sheol, is, is often referred to when God's people are like in the pit of the pit of the pit of the pit, okay? So if you think of the prophet Jonah, he goes down uh, to Tarshish, away from where God wants him to be. He goes down, he goes down into a boat, he goes down into the water, and then down into the fish. And he prays in chapter two, not from the belly of the fish, he is in the fish, um, but he prays in the fish and he says, out of the belly of Sheol. He's not yet dead. He's not yet in this like physical place, but Sheol is very much this idea of the separation, this complete separation from God. Death in the Old Testament, in the Bible, is often not just a biological concept. This is why Jesus will say, though you die, you shall not die. Death in the Old Testament is very much more than a biological concept. It does include that, but it primarily refers to the separation, removal from God's presence into this place of helplessness. And when Adam and Eve are removed from the garden because they've eaten and now they will die, death is not only what happens at the end of their lives, biologically speaking. Death is what happens when they're removed from the garden. They begin to experience death in fullness. This is where the psalmist is crying out in suffering, anguish, and distress. And maybe you've been there too. If you look at these past years, if you reflect on what it's been like to go through what we're going through, maybe it's like a lost job and you say, oh, I'm in the pit. And then that lost job creates marital tensions and you're like, I'm in the pit of the pit. And then finances and, and your emotional well-being, all of these things just continue to descend. And you're in the pit of the pit of the pit. And you think death has its grip on me. I am in the pit. How could God ever get me out of here? Who could possibly help me? It's not going to be these people who said that they were going to be with me. They've all turned their back on me. I feel forgotten. Who could possibly hear my voice? Who could hear Jonah's voice except for God? It is out of the pit that he cries out. And as verse one says, the Lord has heard my voice and my pleas for mercy. Our God hears the cries of the most distant. This is certainly true of the sinner who's so lost, so tangled up in the ways of the flesh needing God to do a work of redemption. And we as sinners, once far from God, cried out to him and said, Lord, save me. 
with nothing of our own to offer. And he did. He heard our plea, our cry for mercy. And why are we able to lift up that cry to this great and holy God? Why are we able to cry out to him knowing that he will hear us and knowing that he will be kind to us in this moment? The psalmist continues. Read with me in verse 4. Look at what he does. He says, Then I called on the name of the Lord. O Lord, I pray, deliver my soul. Deliver my life. Save me from this peril. I called on the name of the Lord. Why does he say I called on the name of the Lord and not just generally on the Lord? This psalmist knows something about who God is because of God's name. In Exodus 3, 14 and 16, Moses asked the Lord to tell him what his name is so that he can go and tell the Israelites who is sending him to free the people from Egypt. Remember, Egyptian Hillel Psalms. God says to Moses in verse 14, I am who I am. Then in verse 16, he says, the Lord has sent me to you. This is my name forever. God self-identifies as the Lord or uh, what is often referred to as Yahweh. You'll have Lord capitalized in your Bible. This is like our translation of Yahweh. Now, why would the Lord call himself this very like bizarre name? I am who I am. What's, what's the deal with that? Now, we could speculate. We could talk all day long about how maybe it's about his aseity, that God is self-existent. Nobody made God exist. He's always been. Maybe we could talk about how God is simple. He is one unified being, not composed of parts. He does not change. We could, we could like talk about what this name possibly means, but we do know from God's own words in Exodus 34, verse 6 to 8, how God identifies his identification, what his name means, God tells us in chapter 34. He says that the Lord passed before him and proclaimed, this is the Lord revealing himself to Moses. He says, the Lord, the Lord. Then he defines what he means by this. He says, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty. Do you see what what God is saying to Moses? He says, if you want to know what my name means, look at my character. I am in the world. I will act as I am. He's not fickle. He's not like one day he's going to be gracious, the next, who knows what he's going to be like. I'm like that, you know? I'm like, uh, I change all the time. Sometimes I'm reliable. Sometimes I'm not that reliable. Sometimes I'm super kind, super gentle. Sometimes I'm a little harsh. God is not like that. God is who he is. He's dependable in that sort of situation. And so the psalmist lifts up his voice as, as verse four says, then I called on the name of the Lord. I called on how God has identified himself to us. I am founded on who he is. Save me. You see this in verse five, don't you? Look there in verse five of Psalm 116. He says, gracious is the Lord and righteous. Our God is merciful 
Just like God identifies himself in Exodus 34, now the psalmist is saying, I cried out to you because you are gracious, you are righteous, you are merciful. You will give me love I don't deserve. You will make right what has been done wrong to me. And you're merciful. You even forgive the trespasses and sins of your people. And so we see the psalmist really come to a point of resolution in verse 7 when he says, Return, O my soul, to your rest, for the Lord has dealt bountifully with you. God brings us by his grace and his mercy and his justice to a place of rest, not of agitation, not of distress. He saves us from this as he hears our cry for help. So we can return to this place of rest, you and I, even today. We can return to this rest because he has heard our cry and he has delivered us. Already he has delivered us into the fullness of life. If death is being removed from him, he has delivered us into the fullness of life. Not just from death, but into something. We'll see this together in verse 8. Look with me there. He says, you have delivered my soul from death, my eyes from tears, my feet from stumbling. Here, he's like saying, you know, from my feet to my eyes, you have delivered me. The entirety of my person, the entirety of my being, you have delivered me from death. And now watch how he talks about delivering us into life. Verse nine, look with me there. He says, I will walk before the Lord in the land of the living. No longer is he in suffering and and this difficulty, distress, but he has been delivered into the fullness of life. Where now those feet that were stumbling, God has kept him from stumbling and his feet are now walking in the presence of God, in the presence of life. And so his response in verse 10 and 11, he says, I believed I believed even when I spoke, I am greatly afflicted. I said in my alarm, all mankind are liars. There's a beautiful thing about faith. That God in his word shows us the real human experiences, those earthy experiences, those raw experiences that you and I are going to experience. As we live in life, we are in the midst of death. And yet we believe even though we say, I am greatly afflicted. Notice that faith is not doubted. Like we don't think faith is not real faith if you are also greatly afflicted. Here, the faithful person is greatly afflicted. This means that we can be honest with God about how we feel. We can say things like, that we are in suffering, that we're suffering distress and and anguish and offer that to the Lord in faith because he has delivered us from our greatest opposer in sin and death and Satan. And so the psalmist responds again in verse 12 to 14 by saying, what shall I render to the Lord for all of his benefits to me? I will lift up the cup of salvation. I will call on the name of the Lord. I will pay my vows to the Lord 
in the presence of all of his people. His response to God's saving act in his life, bringing him from death into the fullness of life, is then to like give his life to the one who is life, testify to the people around him of how good and great our God is. He makes his life now about telling others in the assembly about this God of life. He delivers us into life that we, that we may walk in it. But you may ask, what of those who are not saved from death? Not everybody is like the psalmist in this moment. And you and I in these past years have certainly uh, seen the devastation of death. Uh, We've seen that even though somehow we understand that God has freed us from death, that death remains an enemy yet to be defeated in total. In Matthew 26, verse 30, this is just following the upper room uh, where Jesus offers his body and his blood uh, symbolized by the, the bread and the wine. Uh, in Matthew 26, 30, it says that he leaves that upper room with his disciples on the way to Gethsemane, where we know that Jesus will suffer on his way to the cross. But it says that on their way, they sang hymns. And like almost certainly the hymns that we're talking about here are the very hymns that we're talking about today. That, that at this point, the disciples and Jesus, as they had the Passover meal, had already sang together Psalm 113 and 14. And now as they leave and they walk towards Gethsemane, they are singing these psalms. If you read the Gospel of John, it is like Psalm 118 through and through. But as we think of Psalm 116, I've been thinking all week, like, what a beautiful thing to think of these words on the lips of Jesus. That God has delivered his soul from death, his eyes from tears, his feet from stumbling. He is walking before the Lord in the land of the living. That he will lift up the cup of salvation. Uh, that you and I have salvation because he drank that, that cup of, of death, of God's wrath in the garden. He frees us from this. He went to the limits of my peril, of my cast-offness in the pit of the pit of the pit and brought me into fellowship with God again. It's amazing. Uh, now this... This book that I read as a, as a young man, The Death of Ivan Iliak, um, it does have something of a happy ending, I, I imagine. Um, he, he dies, so uh, it's the name of the book. But <laughs> there is this moment. This doesn't sound convincing. There is this beautiful moment coming into the end of the book where as death overtakes him, He is overtaken more so by the grace and mercy of God. It's like death for Ivan is his redemption. 
As, as he sees his wife, as he thinks about his life, no longer is he full of resentment, but he's full of this like grateful thanksgiving and light appears out of the darkness. This is like such a beautiful Christian idea that the closer to death and to God we are, the more alive we become. This is why Jesus says, though you die, you will not die. This is why Paul picks up what we read in verse 10, where, where the psalmist says, I believe even when I spoke. He, he's, he uses these words in 2 Corinthians 4 when he talks about how you and I are wasting away physically, but daily we are being renewed. Day by day, renewed. That, that I believe that I am being renewed even though I say I am afflicted greatly. Uh, that, that what appears to be a, a present suffering is storing up, I believe, an eternal weight of glory before us. It's the difference between the apparent and what is true and lasting. This is why the Apostle Paul can say in Philippians, for me to live is Christ and to die is gain. That we are going to glory, that there is more coming than what is here. And we can rejoice in this moment that we live in because we are so confident in the deliverance that will come through it. And so when we ask this question, what of those who are not saved from death? We praise God for he welcomes the lowly into his presence. We lift up thanksgiving song to God because even the person who seems so far off, so impossible to redeem, because they're in the pit of the pit of actual biological death, God can raise that person from the dead. That there is hope for even the furthest of all of us. Look with me in in verse 15. We're going to see that God welcomes the lowly into his presence. Verse 15 says, Precious in the sight of the Lord is the death of his saints. Oh Lord, I am your servant. I am your servant, the son of your maidservant. You have loosed my bonds. Now in the case of the psalmist, this could mean something like God values the death of his saint so much that he's gonna protect the life of his saint. This is certainly true in the life of the psalmist proper, right? He's not dead, he was saved from death. And so he says, precious is the life of your saints, so much so that in their dying, you save them. But it's also certainly true that God does not forget those who have passed on. Uh, That those who are dead are not too far gone from him to save, to bring to himself, to restore to the fullness of life. It's a beautiful reality that even as we look back at these past years, as we look at loved ones who we can go days without thinking about, God will never forget them. As there are saints who are forgotten in the 2,000 years in the past that have gone on of good Christians faithfully serving God, they are forgotten, but God has not forgotten them. The same is true for you and I. If we identify with verse 16, that I am your servant, O Lord, I am your servant, the son of your maidservant. I am just a lowly servant of God. You and I are probably going to be forgotten too. But our God welcomes the lowly into his presence. 
This is what the psalmist says in verse 17 to 18. As he closes, he says, I will offer to you the sacrifice of thanksgiving and call on the name of the Lord. I will pay my vows to the Lord in the presence of his people, in the courts of the house of the Lord, in the midst, or in your midst, O Jerusalem. Praise the Lord. Here the psalmist turns to the congregation, the presence of all of God's people. He turns to Jerusalem where God's temple is. He turns to the place where God dwells, the land of the living in which he desires to walk. He joins with these people and begins to tell them about the life-giving God, the God who brought him from the pit into life. He has been welcomed into God's presence and now praises God for who he is. As we recall what God has done in in your and my life, uh, we begin to see our lives even now in in a new light. Let, Let me say it this way. There was once a time where I didn't know the great benefits of God to me, but somebody who did know God came and shared the gospel with me, came and told me about how even though my present state as a sinner, unable to get to God in any way, that God first loved me and sent his son to die on the cross for me, to free me from the chains of sin and death and Satan into new life where I could experience the fullness of life with God. I didn't know that. My life was sin and somebody shared that with me and it changed things. As we recall our memory and share it with others, we infuse meaning into their experience, into their life. We show them what God is doing in their lives. Uh, Eugene Peterson, in in a book on the Psalms called Answering God, he says that most of our lives consist in what God has done. Creating us, speaking to us, loving us. These are all things in the past. If we are not able to remember any of this, we are bereft of the richest definitions in our being. If we fail to remember the way that God made you and I, if we fail to remember God speaking to us, if we fail to remember how God has loved us and saved us from the pit, we deny ourselves the experience of true meaning in whatever event happens in our life. What looks like a pit now is an opportunity for God to move powerfully. We've seen it happen before. We'll see it again. We can proclaim to ourselves the gospel every single day and say, if God saved me from this, if God saved me from wickedness and death and a life of sin separated from God, if he's done that momentous thing, Man, God God can deal with this little stuff, right? Even the things that seem like mountains to us, compared to that is nothing. And if we can continue to tell ourselves, to preach to ourselves, that reality, remind ourselves, how much more meaning will we see in these everyday situations that feel like attacks? We can remind ourselves that our God hears our cries, that he delivers us and he welcomes us into his presence. With all of this, I just wanted to close with uh, three sort of like takeaways. I I want us to consider these together. As we hear the psalmist's words, 
And they become our own as we cry out with the psalmist in these ways. Let us be a people committed to crying out to the God who hears. Let us be a people who are committed to crying out to the God who hears. There are many things out there that promise salvation, that promise meaning in these moments. But let us cry out to the God who alone hears. If you don't know that voice of the Savior who calls out in love and compassion and graciousness and mercy as you are in that pit of sin, as you struggle against who you are, cry out to the Lord. He will hear your voice no matter where you are. If you think I'm too far off, his his ear is inclined to you. He is waiting for you to speak to him. None is too far off. We see that in the psalmist. If you find yourself in a place of trouble where you're like, man, like I said before, like it's my job, it's my family, it's everything. What am I gonna do? God alone can save you from these things as he saved you from this huge thing. Cry out to the Lord. Second, as we consider what it means to rest in the life of God, it certainly means leaving death. It means leaving this death and suffering and destruction that God has delivered us out of. Let us not go back into it. Let us leave it for the good life that God has. Let us walk in the land of the living. Let us walk in his spirit according to his spirit. Let us walk in lives of obedience to our master. Uh, Last week, uh, Pastor Luke really preached a a sermon about rest, and I, I encourage you to check it out. But it's this idea that with him and with him alone is life. With him and with him alone is rest. If you want the good life, it's with him. It's nowhere else. So we ought to rest in the life of God. The last thing I want to encourage you to do, as we think of this psalm, it's incredible, isn't it? Like, here's a a man who has been freed from death and now is testifying in the congregation of the people about God's saving work in his life. And for generations, Israelites now sing this song together. Jesus himself now sings this song with his disciples. And now you and I, as our eyes are glued to that page, we are reading the very words that now become our words. And we speak this out as our own testimony that God has lifted me out of the grave and now is is welcoming me into his presence that I might walk in the land of the living. What a beautiful reality that, that the words from the past now become my own. What a beautiful reality is it for us to be able to be here together and testify, to witness to each other about how God has saved us from the pit to point people who feel like they're in the pit to say, you know, I was there once. Sometimes I still feel like I'm there. I believe, even though I spoke, I'm greatly afflicted. What a beautiful thing it is to be able to encourage one another as we're gathered like this. In a beautiful way, communion is this. We get together regularly and testify to the reality that Jesus has brought us from death to life has offered himself as an atoning sacrifice for you and I. 
We testify to one another about this. And then last, we have an opportunity. There is a world out there who does not know this. They exist in the pit. They feel the pit. They feel the distress of the pit. They feel the anguish of living without God. They are not walking in the land of the living, are they? Maybe, never, maybe nobody has ever told them that there is a God who hears them, can deliver them, and welcome them into his glorious presence. And we can tell people that. It's as simple as telling them about how once you were in the pit, how you recognize the depths of your sin, your distance from God as we sang before, how great the chasm between us. I couldn't, I couldn't span that chasm. But God, by his love, sent his son to die on that cross for my sin and for yours. And so we can testify to the glory of his name that he is gracious, compassionate, slow to anger, and rich in love. Let our lives proclaim this goodness. Let's pray together. Father, we love you because you have heard our voice and our pleas for mercy. Because you have inclined your ear to us. And therefore, we, we will call on your name as long as we live. The snares of death encompassed us. The pains of Sheol laid hold on us. We suffered distress and anguish. But then when we called on your name, O Lord, when we cried, deliver our souls, you proved yourself to be gracious and righteous and merciful. You preserved the simple, the low. And so, Father, our testimony this morning as we come as one people gathered beneath the cross and dwelt by your spirit, our testimony is one of praise. Praise God, we are grateful for who you are and what you've done. Amen.